We are in Romans 8. The best one. The best one, okay. And uh, tonight we're looking at verses 5 through 13. Romans 8, verses 5 through 13. Quite a bit in this passage, uh, but by the Lord's grace, hopefully we'll be able to digest it all tonight. All right, so please follow along. Romans 8, verses 5 through 13. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live. Let me pray for our time tonight. Lord God, thank you for your spirit. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be working in us tonight. God, that your spirit would give me strength to say your truth. God, keep me from speaking any words that are not your truth. God, give me your strength and your wisdom, your discernment, and your grace. I pray your spirit would be working in each of our hearts tonight, convicting us according to how we need to be convicted. Open our eyes to see your truth. Open our hearts to receive your truth. Lord, I pray that we would be changed to live your truth for your glory and your praise. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think especially in our kinds of circles, we often talk about the work of God, the Father. We often talk about the work of Jesus, God the Son, and for good reason. Uh, to see what God the Father, to see what God the Son have done for us, it leads us to great worship. And we should see and contemplate and meditate and give thanks for the work of God the Father and God the Son. But we must not forget about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think often... Uh, we can and we do forget about the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we're hesitant to talk about the Holy Spirit because maybe we're unsure of his role or what he's done or, or what he continues to do today. Maybe we're hesitant uh, to talk about the Holy Spirit because of the misunderstandings and, and the false teachings about the Holy Spirit of today. Nevertheless, we must not neglect the Holy Spirit and we must appropriately and accurately understand the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And in this passage, we clearly see the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. In fact, in general, this this eighth chapter in Romans speaks a lot about the Holy Spirit. We see it a lot in this passage, and we see even the whole chapter. In the first seven chapters, the Holy Spirit is mentioned only once. Up to this point, up to the first seven chapters, only once. But in this eighth chapter alone, the Holy Spirit is referred to almost 20 times. So it's quite a bit. So who is the Holy Spirit? Well, first off, the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. A he, the Holy Spirit, is not a thing, but the Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity, equal to God the Father and equal to God the Son, but different in role. The Holy Spirit is a he. Tonight in this passage, we're going to look at a couple of roles of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that he changes our nature, that he takes the natural, spiritually dead person and gives them a new nature in Christ. And we're also going to see that he empowers the Christian to live righteously. That with this new nature, the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers the believer to live for God. The Christian has responsibility to live out his faith, yes, but he does so fully dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's main thrust here in this passage is that the change of nature caused by the Holy Spirit results in a change of action in how we live our life, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit. All right, so that the The change of nature results in a change of action, both empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change. Now, Paul is not presenting two potential ways to live your life. He's not urging us to live one way and not live another way. He's not saying, okay, uh, you, you know, maybe you live like this in the flesh or maybe you live like this in the spirit. He's not saying these are two potential ways to live your life. He does that in other passages in Scripture, but not here in this passage. In this passage, Paul is saying you are either in the flesh, as in not saved, or you are either in the Spirit, in that you are saved. He's talking positionally here. By nature, we are in the flesh. We've seen this so many times throughout Romans. But the Spirit has changed the nature of every Christian and a result in living for God. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. All right, the first section is going to be our biggest, which is verses 5 through 11. Where did the PowerPoint go? <laughs> it is the change in nature. All right, our first main section, verses 5 through 11, is the change in nature. We're going to look at four aspects of the change in nature between the flesh and the spirit. Okay, these, are, these points are going to be somewhat lengthy. You'll see it up there. So the first is this, that those in the flesh set their minds on the flesh. But those in the spirit set their minds on the spirit. Verses 5 and 6. Right, I'll say that again since the visuals aren't working. There we go. Those in the flesh set their minds on the flesh. Those in the spirit set their minds on the spirit. That's what he says in verses 5 and 6. 
Paul compares those who set their mind according to the flesh versus those who set their mind according to the spirit. The flesh representing the unregenerate. All right, that's important for us to understand as we compare for the majority of tonight. That the flesh representing the unregenerate, the non-Christian, and the spirit being the Holy Spirit. And in this case, referring to those who are Christians. Now, what does it mean to set your mind either according to the flesh or according to the spirit? As he says in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. What does that mean to set your mind? It's talking about your disposition, your, your bent, your natural leaning. Okay, When he's saying set your mind, it's, it's not referring to your intellect or your knowledge, but rather it's about your affections or your outlook or your reasoning. And that's important for us to know because someone can know a lot about God and, quote, set their minds on the things of God, but still be far from him. Still be in the nature of the flesh. And yet while setting their minds, quote, their knowledge on God. Pure knowledge about godly things and even agreeing with the things of the Bible does not make you of the spirit. Just ask the demons, says James 2.19, right? That they believe, but they shudder. So it's not about knowledge. It's not about setting your mind of saying, yeah, I, I, I study the word and I even agree with it. That, that's not what he's saying. Let's look at what it means to set your mind on the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit. All right, well, we're going to break that down. So those that are in the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, as in their outlook on life, as in their worldview, their desires are set on the things of the world. As Philippians 3.19 says, that they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That this is what they set their minds to. That this is their bent. This is what their life revolves around. The things of the world. Earthly things. Is your life all about the things of the world? Is your life about earthly things? Or is it about godly and heavenly things? See, to have your life be about the things of this world brings you shame, says Philippians 3. To have your mind set on the flesh means that your very core, that your passions, that your motives, what drives you are not the things in which bring glory and honor to God. Instead... Your life is about something else. Someone or something lesser than God. And oftentimes it's self, right? Oftentimes we live for self and our own glory rather than God. And what he says here in verse 6 is to have your mind on the flesh is death. And it's interesting. Paul does not say that it leads to death. But what is he saying? He says that it is death. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh, right, to have that disposition, to have that bent, to set your mind on the flesh is death. Not that it leads to death. Now, it's true that sin in our sinful nature of the flesh, it does lead to death. We saw this in Romans 6, 23. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying it is death. That it is the present state in which every unbeliever currently exists. That if your nature is in the flesh, if your nature is that of your natural and unchanged nature, that you are in a state of death right now. In that you cannot respond to the things of God because you are a spiritual corpse. To set 
the mind on the flesh is death. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person, right, the person in the flesh, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is folly to you, non-believer. The gospel means nothing to you. And some may say that they agree with the teachings of God's word. And they say, well, it's not folly to me. I, I agree with it intellectually. But there's a difference between saying, I agree with these words that are taught in scripture and saying that the words that are taught in Scripture have come alive in me. There's a difference. The first is just pure intellect in which you may or may not agree with. But the second is life-changing. It is faith lived out. It is a heart realigned. It is a sacrificial life in worship to God. And that is folly to the unbeliever. Why? Because you're still in the flesh. Because your mind is set on the flesh, that your bent, your motive, your life revolves around the flesh, not God. This is the nature of the unbeliever. And your only hope is for the Holy Spirit to change your nature. Now, in contrast, those that are in the Spirit, he says, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And this is now describing the Christian, the one who the Spirit has changed their nature. To set their minds on the things of the Spirit would be the opposite of what we've said with the flesh. To have a disposition, a worldview, a hunger, a desire for the things of God. No longer the things of the flesh. No longer the things of the world. But now for the things of God. For things that bring glory and honor and praise to Him. See, with a new nature comes new natural desires. If you were of the flesh, but now you're of the Spirit, the Spirit has given you a new nature. That comes with new desires. Do you desire the things of God? Do you desire what is holy? Do you desire what is just? Do you desire what is pure? Do you desire what is righteous? Do you desire His glory above all else? Now he says here to have your mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. See, this is in contrast to the flesh, which is what? Death. Those that have a new nature in the spirit have both life and peace. No longer death, but now life and peace. And this is not an equation. It's not saying if you set your minds on the spirit, then you will receive life and peace. Not an equation. This is a consequence. It's a result that those who have a new nature, whose minds are set on the spirit, have life and peace. Paul's not speaking behaviorally, he's speaking positionally. That the Christian has life in God. That the Christian has peace with God. That they are no longer spiritually dead, but they are spiritually alive. That they are no longer at war with God, but they now are at peace with God. See, this change in nature has changed their standing with God. And to have a new standing with God changes everything in life. It changes your outlook. It changes your disposition. It changes your motives. It changes your pursuits. It changes your interests. It changes your desires. Christian, you cannot be in the spirit with a new nature, having life and peace, and yet remain dead to the things of God. 
How can you have a new nature to be a Christian and, and, and have no affection to the things of God and have no battle and hatred with your sin and have no pursuit of holiness? You can't. It makes no sense. To be in the spirit, to have a new nature, to have life with God, to have peace with God, it changes everything. Don't tell me that you're a Christian, that all these things have happened to you and they've happened for you and they've happened in you. Don't tell me you're a Christian and yet you remain the same. And yet you don't love the things of God. And yet you don't love his people. And yet you don't hate and fight your sin. And yet you don't pursue to live a holy life. What? How can you say that you have a new nature? It sounds like you still have the nature of the flesh. Now remember, this is not a recipe. Paul's talking about a result. That's already happened. He's talking about positionally. That those who are in the spirit, they live in this way. What do the tendencies and the pursuits and the habits of your life show that you are in the flesh or that you are in the spirit. He goes on in comparing to say that those in the flesh are hostile to God and those in the spirit are indwelt by God. Those in the flesh are hostile to God and those in the spirit are indwelt by God. Those in their natural state, those in the flesh that we've talked about, are hostile to God. To be hostile means that you are actively opposed to God, that you are at enmity with God. You understand that if you're in the flesh, you are hostile to God. It doesn't matter if you are zealously religious or if you are outwardly wicked, you are hostile to God. Now, there are probably more in this room who are zealously religious than they are outwardly wicked. But know this. Even the zealously religious person, if you are still in the flesh, you are hostile to God. It's not a matter of feelings. Oh, I don't feel hostile to him. It's a matter of position and reality. If you are here and you're not a Christian... You are hostile to God. And there's hostility between you and God. Remember, Romans 5 says, in our natural state, in the flesh, what? We are ungodly, he says. What else does he say? We are enemies of God. That there is hostility between you and God. Going to church, agreeing with the teachings of the Bible, living a good life, none of this puts an end to your hostility with God. You need a new nature. You need a new heart. You need faith in Jesus Christ and forgiveness from the Father. And all of this comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you are not in the flesh, if you are a Christian, then what does it say? That the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You see that? That the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And this word dwells brings the idea of being in one's home. 
Like what an incredible contrast. The non-Christian is hostile to God, enemies with God, whereas the Christian is the home of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity. What great encouragement. What great peace. What great confidence this ought to bring to the Christian that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. He's made a home. He's made a living space in your heart. The Holy Spirit makes a home in every single Christian. There is a belief, a false belief, that only certain Christians, the really good Christians, have the Holy Spirit within them. And Paul says here, well, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. It's really quite simple. If you don't have the spirit in you, then you are not a Christian. And on the flip side, if you are a Christian, you can be certain that the Holy Spirit does dwell within you. Being a Christian is not just agreeing to certain beliefs and saying, yep, I sign off. I believe in this. Being a Christian is not checking boxes off your checklist and making sure that you're living in line with what God wants. Being a Christian is being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is a change in nature. It is being taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his marvelous light. It is a change that we can't not make on our own, but it's a change that only happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives new life. And it is the Spirit who indwells in each believer. If you claim to be a Christian, but you have no evidence of the presence and power and fruit of the Holy Spirit, then how can you say you are in Christ? How can you say you are truly a Christian? The Holy Spirit indwells every Christian. So Christian, does your life reflect the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you see evidence of the presence of God in your life? Do you see evidence of the power of God in your life? Do you see evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? Or do you claim to be a Christian? Do you claim to have a new nature? Do you claim to have the Holy Spirit inside you? But your life is the same as before. Your life is the same as those in the flesh. That doesn't match up. If you are a genuine Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells within you. And praise be to God for that. So live in the presence and the power and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If indeed you are a Christian. Next, we see another comparison. Thirdly, that those in the flesh cannot please God. Those in the Spirit receive life because of His righteousness. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Those in the Spirit receive life because of His righteousness. He says it very clearly here in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you are in the flesh... You cannot please God. 
It's so simple and yet so profound. This ought to crush all hopes and all pursuits of making yourself right before God. You're in the flesh. You're here. You're not a Christian. Then guess what? You cannot please God. So stop trying to please him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're in the flesh, stop trying to please God. You cannot. It doesn't matter how much you sacrifice or how moral you live your life or how much effort you put in. You cannot please God. Whatever sacrifice you think you're offering to God, it's not an acceptable offering. You are in the flesh. You are hostile to God. Your mind, your disposition is still in the flesh. You cannot have a genuine, worshipful love for God. You are spiritually dead. You may witness many people who seemingly live a godly, fruitful life, but if they are not in Christ, their life is not pleasing to God. It is not acceptable worship. It is not an acceptable offering. And it brings them no spiritual benefit, and it brings them not an inch closer to God. For those, those in here who are not a Christian, okay, if this is you, if I'm talking to you, I beg you, do not try to earn your salvation or, or to please God by your works. You cannot. You can't do it. It's futile. You can spend your whole life in the flesh Trying to please God and the only place it will lead you is the pits of hell. You can't do it. You are totally incapable of making yourself right before God. What you need is not your works to offer to God. What you need is Christ's works. What you need is not faith in yourself to please God. What you need is faith in Jesus Christ. What you need is not to fix and clean yourself up. What you need is a completely new heart and a new nature. You do not have it within yourself to please God. You do not have in yourself to have a right standing with God or or to gain access to salvation. You need the grace of God. Now the contrast here between those in the flesh and those in the spirit Is that those in the flesh, they cannot please God, but those in the spirit have the righteousness of Christ covering them. Now, he kind of goes back and forth between Christ and spirit, saying the spirit of Christ and if Christ is in you. And and it's not because they're the same. It's not because Christ and the Holy Spirit are the same. They are indeed different persons of the Godhead. But it's because they work so closely and so intimately together that he goes back and forth between them. In that this, it is the finished work of Christ, and it's his righteousness, what? That is imputed onto Christians by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. See them working together, side by side, hand in hand, that if you are a Christian, you can be thankful for the righteousness of Christ, because you have no righteousness on your own. Remember, you cannot please God. Apart from the work of God in your life, you're hopeless. You can't please him. But now you have the righteousness of Christ covering your life and you are made right before God. What? I can't please him. You're right. You can't. But Christ lived that perfect righteous life. And with the Holy Spirit, you now have his righteousness covering you. 
And not only that, but now with a new nature that the Spirit has given you, you can please God. Not that you can earn a greater salvation. Not that you can earn extra favor with God. Not that you add to the work of Christ. But now with a new nature and with the Holy Spirit indwelling inside you, Christian, you can live a holy life unto God. You can, with a genuine heart of worship now, offer your life as a living sacrifice to Him. Not to earn anything. Not to maintain anything, but out of response of what has already been given to you and what's been done for you. So Christian, with confidence, with the Holy Spirit inside you, and with the righteousness of Christ already covering you, live in worship to God and live a life that is fully pleasing to Him. And then lastly in this section, our last comparison, is that those in the flesh have eternal death. Those in the spirit have eternal life. Those in the flesh have eternal death. Those in the spirit have eternal life. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's declaration is here is that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that is living inside every Christian. Like how incredible is that? There is assurance of a resurrected eternal life for the Christian. Not because of your works, not because I, I've seen so much fruit in my life, not because you said a prayer or because you've done the right things or because you've said the right things. That's not why you have assurance of your salvation. But you, Christian, can be assured of your salvation because of the finished work of Christ and because God never breaks his promises and because the spirit has sealed you for all of eternity. That's where our assurance lies. So what is there to fear, Christian? Why, why worry about today, Christian? The spirit inside will raise us up to life in the last days. We will be alive with Christ for all of eternity. Are there hardships that we face today? Yes. Are there difficulties? Are there pains? Yes. But Christian, do not Lose heart. You have the spirit inside you. The same spirit raised Christ from the dead. And you can be assured that he will raise you as well. This life is not it. This life is short and temporary. It is not our permanent dwelling place, Christian. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. And we live by the power of the Holy Spirit unto God. Fulfilling his mission. And one day we will die. But we will be raised again to new life. And we will be celebrating at the table of Jesus Christ. Worshiping God forever. Now if you are in the flesh. Right. This is still the comparison. The contrast. 
If you are in the flesh, you do not have the spirit dwelling within you. And so you will not resurrect to eternal life, but instead will have eternal death. And this eternal death is not just this this empty void of, of silence and darkness. You're like, that sounds kind of nice. It's not what it is. It is the just penalty that you deserve for the sins that you've committed against the holy and righteous God. And I deserve that penalty. You know, I deserve that penalty. And I deserve that eternal wrath too. But thanks be to God that by his grace he saved me. And that his spirit dwells within me. And I have eternal life waiting for me. You understand? I'm, I, I'm not better. It, it, it's not that I, I'm better. I'm smarter. I, whatever. It's that God saved me. All by his grace. Not by me. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I pray that God would save you too. And that he would open your heart to receive the gospel. And I pray for you. I really do. Because that is what you need. You need a heart change. And I wish I could do that for you. But I know only the Spirit can. So I pray to God that His Spirit would change your heart. Now our next section. We see that the Holy Spirit is the agent of change as he changes our nature, but it doesn't stop there. He changes also our action. If you have a new nature, that results in a change in action. It results in a change of life. We see that in verses 12 through 13. We'll just look at two quick points here. The first is that the Christian is no longer ruled by the flesh but is ruled by the Spirit. The Christian is no longer ruled by the flesh, but is ruled by the Spirit. In our natural state, in the flesh, we are ruled by the flesh. Maybe you remember this. Paul explained this more thoroughly in chapter 6 when he talked about the unregenerate person, remember, being a slave to sin. You might remember that. The non-Christian is bound and is enchained to his sin and to his flesh, right? Remember that? But the Christian, however, what? He's been set free. He's no longer ruled by the flesh. He's no longer obligated to live according to the flesh. The flesh no longer has reign over him. You are not a debtor to the flesh, Christian. You can say no to sin. You are free to do so. Christ has made you free. So Christian, live as a free man. Don't go back serving the flesh as if you owe it to him, as if he's still your master. Don't go back serving your own master, saying, yes, master, yes, master, I'll obey you. I'll obey you, sin. I'll obey you, flesh. No, instead, live in freedom and live according to the Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. You are now obligated to live a holy life, and you now have the power to live a holy life. What does that mean to be obligated to live a holy life? It's like, ah, sounds kind of weird. It feels weird. What does it mean to be obligated? Well, look what he says in verse 12. He says, so then, or maybe in your version it says, therefore, 
What? It's looking backwards to what he just said. To all of what we just looked at, that change in nature, that's what he's looking back towards. So then, therefore, based on the change of nature, he's saying is that if we are in the Spirit, if the Spirit is indeed dwelling within us, and we've died to the flesh, he's saying that's the past. That is behind us, and we must live according to our new nature now. We must live according to the Spirit. We are obligated. Not obligated in the sense of we begrudgingly have to live a certain way in order to maintain our, self, our salvation or, or, or to appease our God. We, we're obligated to do so. No, but it's an obligation in the sense of we will. It's natural. Of course. We will do it. The Christian will live a holy life. They're obligated to do so. Why? Because they're no longer obligated to live in the flesh. They're no longer debtors to the flesh. They are alive in God and now with a new nature have no other natural response but to live for him. That's what happens. So live, Christian. Live for God with your new nature. And lastly, as we see in verse 13, that the Christian is strengthened by the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. There's a lot of words up there. The Christian is strengthened by the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. How is it that the Christian no longer lives under obligation to the flesh, but instead lives under obligation to the Spirit? How do we do that? He says it right here in verse 13. By putting to death the deeds of the body. This is a characteristic of being a child of God. Now the Spirit dwells within you. You do put to death the deeds of the body. It's part of living according to the Spirit. With the Spirit dwelling inside you, there is now a natural hatred for your sin. How can there not be? I mean, just think about it. How can there not be a hatred towards your sin? Sin is completely against and opposed to God. And if you are a Christian, you have God dwelling inside you. There must be hatred. There must be conflict. When the sin inside you meets the spirit inside you, they don't say, hey, what's up? Nice to see you here. There's conflict. Do you have a hatred and an active pursuit to purge the sin out of your life? Do you take your sin seriously? Chances are you are not taking drastic enough measures to mortify the sin in your life. Maybe, maybe we have enough courage to admit to our sin to our brothers and sisters when we go in our discussion groups or we meet with our discipler or we talk with our friends. Maybe, and maybe even not. But let's just say we feel good about ourselves because in our discussion group we, we said, oh yeah, you know, I really struggled with this. That took a lot of courage. But do you have enough courage to make dramatic changes and sacrifices in your life to fight your sin? What are you willing to give up in order to fight your sin? Do you hate your sin with a burning passion? Or is there a little bit in you that wants to fight it just enough to not have to really deny it in your life? 
You hate it just enough to be able to admit it to someone and say, I do struggle with this. And maybe you try for a couple days or in a couple ways, but you kind of want to keep it there a little bit. That you're comfortable with a little sin here, a little sin there. You're comfortable with the amount of sin in your life because it's not as much as most people. Let it never be. With the Spirit in you, put to death the deeds of the body. This is a fruit, an evidence of the Spirit now living within you. On the flip side, Paul talks about the one who remains in the flesh. And he says they will die. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, he's not saying that if the Christian starts living like the world, if the Christian starts living like the flesh, then they'll lose their salvation. That's not what he's saying, okay? Paul's already stated at the beginning of this chapter that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's not take it out of context. Paul's not saying fight your sin and you'll earn and you'll maintain eternal life. But if you don't fight it good enough, you'll lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying that if your nature is still that of the flesh, you will be living in the flesh and this results in death. It's pretty emphatic, actually. Paul is saying you will die. You will die. Or as the NASB says, you must die. You must die. It's not a might. You might die. No, you will. You must. The point is this, that remaining in your natural state of the flesh, it results in living of the flesh, which leads to death. This is guaranteed for you. If you are still in the flesh and not in the spirit, your end is death. Does your life reflect a life that is led by the Spirit? Putting to death the deeds of the body? Or does your life reflect a life that lives according to the flesh? What does your life reveal? As we close, I hope you can see the amazing work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. We need the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we are hopeless. We cannot change our nature. Our nature is out of the flesh. We are hostile to God. We cannot please God. We are spiritually dead and deserve eternal wrath. But the Spirit gives us eyes to see, gives us a new heart, breathes new life into us and gives us a new nature. We cannot defeat the sin in our lives, in our fleshly nature. We continue in our sin. We cannot do good and we continue to rot from the inside out. But the Spirit gives us victory over sin and we can say no to sin as we're no longer obligated or debtors to sin. We, we, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to God. And so we're free to follow Him. The Holy Spirit changes everything. Praise be to God for the Holy Spirit. If you are here tonight and you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside you. 
And He changes everything. You cannot say you're a Christian and therefore you have the Spirit in you and be the same. You can't say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I've got to be, but then my life's just the same? Christian, walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Live for God. See the fruit in which He's producing in you. If you have the Spirit in you, there is fruit that's being produced. See that fruit and continue in those ways. And put to death the deeds of the body and pursue a holy life unto Him. Now a word of warning to those who are still in the flesh. A word of warning to those in here, maybe that are not a Christian, you are still in the flesh. And maybe you claim to be a Christian because you are living a moral life that looks good on the outside, that says the right things, that does the right things. But inwardly, there's no genuine repentance. There's no genuine worship. There's no genuine desire for God. Then your so-called salvation is false. Your claim of Christ is a counterfeit. It's not about what you do or what you say or making sure that you've checked all the right boxes. It's about having a new nature in the spirit. It's about having a heart transformation that is now bent towards worship of God. If you have not had this transformation of the nature, I urge you to come to God in genuine repentance of your sins and faith in Jesus Christ. He alone can save. But have confidence that He indeed is mighty to save. Praise be to God that the Holy Spirit is the agent of change. We need change. We need a change in our nature. And we need a change in our action. It is the Holy Spirit who does this change in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. That you change us. That you give us new life. That you give us eyes to see. That you give us a heart of repentance. That you transform our hearts to worship you. That you convict us of our sins. That you give us the strength to pursue a holy life. I pray that your spirit would do a work in each of us. God, for those in here who are unregenerate, God, breathe new life into them. I pray you'd give them eyes to see, that you'd give them faith, that you'd give them a heart of repentance, that you would save them. Lord, for those in here who belong to you, I pray that your spirit would work in them, that they would turn from their sins, that they would have confidence in you, that they would pursue a life of holiness for your glory and for your praise. I pray even now in this time of discussion that it would be beneficial, be fruitful, that it would be for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.